Hello, and welcome to Andraste's Gadfly, episode two. After a somewhat long hiatus, we are back. <laughs> this is where two overworked philosophers discuss the Dragon Age games, and we bring philosophical theory and ideas to bear on the games to see what we can learn. So I'm Jill Fellows. I'm Kira Thompsons. All right. So this week, month, maybe we'll make this a quarterly episode. <laughs> <laughs> We can do it. Maybe maybe we can commit to four times a year. Are we too overworked to commit to four times a year? I think at least four. <laughs> Uh-oh, it's on record now. Yeah. So this, this episode, we're discussing love, sex, and relationships in the Dragon Age games, but that's huge. That's way too much. So we decided that we would narrow it down, and we're going to begin in the middle by starting about, talking about love, sex, and relationships in Dragon Age 2. So, my first question for you, Kara, is who did your hawk romance the first time in Dragon Age 2? It was Anders. Oh, no! And let me tell you, that was so much fun. <laughs> you tell. That was, that was a wild ride, because I played this one without any spoilers. Okay. So, I had no idea what was coming down the pipeline. So, it was really quite a hilarious playthrough and confirmed what my wife thinks which is that if she ever needs to know who a villain is in Dragon Age she just has to ask who did she romance <laughs> <laughs> because I have terrible taste in romance partners apparently. if you're romancing the character they must be evil <laughs> or they're going to do something really really bad and so yeah it was it was Anders in part because he was a familiar character True, right. Like Because I had played them in order. And so this was the next one. And he came up and I was like, oh, he was hilarious. And he'll be fun. He was really good in, in Origins Awakening. Yeah, I liked him as a character. And I tend to lock it in pretty early in terms of deciding who I'm going to just go all out with and try to figure, you know, figure out how to romance them. And so I had decided that very early on and just went with it. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Dragon Age 2 is probably the game I've played the most often. I actually really like it of the three games, which I know is not a popular opinion, but I really <laughs> like Dragon Age 2. And I actually did play them out of order, so I didn't know Anders because I hadn't played Origins. 2 was also my entry point to the games, which might be why I like it. And I think my first romance was Fenris. Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, that's true of all of them, isn't it, though? Oh, dear. Yeah, kind of, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, there's the point where, like, Fenris leaves you. Yes. I can't remember if I continued the romance after that. I think I didn't. <laughs> I think I was like, okay, whatever. And so my first talk kind of ended up alone at the end, <laughs> which maybe is good. Maybe that's, you know, that's what should have happened. Well, that's how my hawk ended up. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not because Anders leaves you. Uh, no, because Anders was dead. <laughs> We can talk about that decision later. <laughs> we can. All right. So in, in your opinion, if you have an opinion, we've already kind of tipped our hand and said that all four of these romances are, shall we say, problematic in different ways. But in your opinion, who, if any, would be your canonical or best romance for Hawk? That is such a hard question for me. I will admit, I've only played 
Dragon Age 2 twice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so the first time it was Anders and the second time it was Fenris. <laughs> and I never really liked the other two characters that much as romance partners. Right. And the second time I was thinking of romancing Meryl, but then I accidentally got a 100% rivalry and it always seemed weird to do a, a romance with a rivalry, which we can talk about later. Yeah. So I think of all of the ones I've I've done, Fenris was, I think, in some ways, it felt better than Anders did. Okay. Thinking back about Anders and his kind of split personality. There's some weird stuff with Anders and Justice. It, there are some weird stuff going on with Anders. And I still don't know. If any, like, I don't think there is an ideal romance. I think they're all kind of very messed up. I think that's fair. So, yeah, I think there's, there is no sort of ideal pairing, I think. But on the other hand, I mean, that's, that's real life. It's true. It's true. Of the four of them, I (laughs) think that my favorite was probably Isabella. I had initially written off Isabella as being kind of a male gaze character mm. from the way that, you know, she's dressed and characterized. I thought that this character was in the game to appeal to cis het men, basically. And so it wasn't it wasn't in my first playthrough through or even in my second, I think, where I romanced Isabella. That came later when I got to know her as a character and was like, oh, okay, like this is actually a multidimensional character. Right. <laughs> Which I, I didn't know because I'd never played any Bioware games. And now I know that pretty much all Bioware characters are multidimensional. And I like the friendship Isabella romance because it felt like both Hawk and Isabella grew through that romance and became better people <laughs> <laughs> through interacting with each other. And it felt like they came to the romance kind of on equal terms. So I did like that, even though Isabella also kind of betrays you and tricks you. Yes. I mean, not as dramatically as Anders, but <laughs> but she does. So that's that's probably the one that I think, insofar as there is an ideal one, it's the one I liked the best. But my guilty pleasure romance is Fenris. <laughs> I like that one. That story was an interesting story. So we can talk about about why I think it's a guilty pleasure, maybe later on. (laughs) Okay, so there are four romances in the original game, right? And then there's a fifth one that got dropped with a DLC. So you have Anders, Meryl, Isabella, and Fenris, and then Sebastian got dropped a little bit later as a DLC character with a DLC romance. And then there's a smattering of other characters you can have sexual encounters with, or flirtations with, but those are kind of like your your romances. And so that kind of means that you've got, what, 10 romances if we count rivalry and friendship is different, and they do play out differently. So that's, that's kind of the game, and that's what we're going to talk about. So before we dive into kind of the game in general, let's move to uh, section two, the gadfly and the dragon. where we're going to introduce philosophical theories, ideas, and perspectives that we might reach for when we're thinking about this episode. So what I'd like to introduce is an idea from feminist theory in general, also in feminist philosophy, uh, sex-positive feminism, sex-negative feminism, and the politics of desire. So 
Sex positive feminism is probably the one that a lot of our listeners would be more familiar with now because it tends to be more current. And it's the idea that we should celebrate the desires that we have and we should celebrate and embrace the attractions that we feel. And a lot of this is in response to feminism that came from earlier, sex negative feminism. So sex negative feminism, we can kind of trace back to the 70s. And it was this kind of move of thinking about desire from a political framework and thinking about the idea that a lot of desire, particularly in a heteronormative context, is driven by the patriarchy and domination. And feminists would argue, for example, that entering into a heterosexual relationship entered into this idea of domination and submission, and that a woman could never experience heterosexual sex in a way that wasn't submissive. Some people going so far as to say all heterosexual encounters were basically rape or akin to rape. And so there was this really, this push against entering into these kind of relationships or these sexual encounters. And we even get in sex negative feminism, this idea of political lesbianism. I don't know if you've encountered this one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, This idea that heterosexual women should not follow heterosexual desire and should instead be political lesbians because entering into a straight relationship is playing into the patriarchy. And there's rightfully so quite a bit of pushback against this, against the idea that you could change your desire based on these kind of political ideas. The idea of political lesbianism is definitely pretty damaging both to LGBTQ communities and also to the recognition of straight women's desires. So it was was a big problem. And we get sex positive feminism kind of coming as a reaction to that saying, look, this push towards viewing straight women's desires as being problematic really kind of takes us back to a Victorian period. It's moving backwards in terms of feminist discourse. It's thinking of women's desires as problematic, and we don't want to do that. We want to celebrate all diversity of desire. Sex positive feminism has some problems as well, though, in that it often doesn't allow us to critique our desires or to think about why we're attracted to who we're attracted to. So it doesn't necessarily let us critique, for example, problematic associations of beauty or of sexuality or the ways in which people might view certain bodies or certain presentations as undesirable and how this is already kind of saturated with political and social connotations. So there is a critique of sex positive feminism too, that it really opens things up too widely and kind of puts sexual desire in a place where it floats free of any kind of political or social influence and floats free of critique, which we we know it doesn't really float free of influence. We know that there's a lot of political and social forces that influence who we are attracted to, even though attraction is very personal and individual. So I'd like to talk about these different attitudes towards desire and see what comes out in the Dragon Age games by thinking about them in terms of sex positive feminism and the politics of desire. So that's one thing I want to bring to the table today. So what I want to bring to the table actually comes from when I was teaching a class on philosophy of love. And one of the things that the students really like to talk about were the the ancient Greeks. <laughs> students actually really got into the, the ancient Greeks' discussions of love. And 
they really latched onto distinguishing three different kinds of love. So the notion of uh, eros, agape, and philia as different kinds of love. So eros is generally considered the sort of passionate desire mm-hmm. that we would associate with sexual sexual desire, I guess. Whereas agape is more of a love that is unconditional and is sort of considered in a lot of the early literature. It's more pure. The The paradigmatic case, which is often sort of put forward, is, is the notion of God's love. There's a lot of philosophy of love stuff, which is written within the Christian tradition. And this is where sort of agape comes out. But the idea is that it's not an instrumental or an irrational love. It is very much rooted in reason and unconditionality, where it's just present. And then philia, which is sort of friendly love, the way that we love our friends, family members, uh, like children or people that we're close with, but we wouldn't have, say, sexual desire for, or that sort of unconditional pure love. And I think these are interesting distinctions that we can use to categorize different kinds of love, although they're, they are problematic when faced with certain contemporary theories of love. Some theories of romantic love think about it in terms of within agape, where it's about creating value within the person that you love, whereas other accounts of romantic love treat sort of sexual desire as as sort of fundamental to romantic love. And I think the reason I think these are interesting in the context of Dragon Age 2 in particular is the mechanic <laughs> by which you enter into romantic relations and what that says about how romance and sexual desire intermingle because I, I think the mechanic by which it works in Dragon Age 2 in terms of the how the game frames it is very interesting and I think it makes for good gameplay but I think it also completely removes <laughs> what love and romance is really all about in some ways. Achievement unlocked. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have sex negative and sex positive feminism, eros, agape, and philia. And we should probably also, and probably will, end up talking about the gender binary and how it might reinforce things like heteronormative monogamous desire. So the gender binary holds there's just male and female, and gender a gender as a spectrum holds the idea that actually there are multiple different genders. There's not just two. We should think of gender along a spectrum. And the gender binary and heteronormativity tend to work together. So heteronormativity is the idea that it is somehow normal or natural to be heterosexual. And if you have a gender binary, then it seems to reinforce, or the argument is that it reinforces heteronormativity because there's an idea that you have these two parts, right? You have male and you have female and they fit together. So that's why there's two. And it justifies this idea of heteronormativity and also of monogamy, not just of heteronormativity, but that the idea that the proper relationship would be a couple, two, two parts that come together to form a whole. 
So that's another thing that I think may come out as we talk about these games, this idea of a binary and of a romantic unit being understood best as a monogamy, as a coming together of two. So let's move on to our next section, the game as frame. We're going to talk a little bit in general about how these relationships and how these romantic encounters are presented to us through the game. That is, what does the lens of the game tell us about how these relationships were constructed or encourage us to think about with regards to these relationships? So we're still only talking about Dragon Age 2 here. And the first issue that I want to talk about is that I think other than Sebastian, everyone in Dragon Age 2 is what we might call hawk sexual. Yes. I believe Sebastian is heterosexual. If I remember correctly, if you play a male hawk, Sebastian's not interested. I think you're right. But everybody else is hawk sexual. So whoever hawk is, whether hawk is male or female, everyone is hot for hawk. (laughs) And if I'm remembering correctly, Isabella is the only character that is confirmed as a queer character that she's presented as bisexual. She's interested in both men and women. It's not confirmed for anybody else other than they're all interested in Hawk. So some some people complained about this framing of everybody as being Hawk sexual, that people don't really have a sexuality in Dragon Age 2. In Dragon Age 3, this was definitely changed such that NPC characters did have sexualities. And I can see the complaint in Dragon Age 2. If you read it positively, I used to kind of think of every playthrough as being its own contained world. And so I used to think, okay, if Hawk is male and Hawk is romancing Anders, then Anders is bi or gay in this world. But I can see how on multiple playthroughs, this is a bit weird, potentially. I never found that as a problem for me. I didn't realize that people criticized it, in part because I thought what it does is it really provides the best of all possible worlds in that you're not making a choice about gender in the setup your character doesn't at that point immediately limit you and i th- i thought that was yeah actually kind of nice unlike other <laughs> games which we shall not speak about at any length where you have to pick a specific gender N- not just gender but also race yes right like if you're an elf or if you're a dwarf that all of a sudden now sets up restrictions and so one of the things and the first game I played was actually Inquisition. So this was the this was the last game I played of the series. And I found that actually really kind of nice that it was not limited in terms of who you could enter into a relationship with. Yeah. Because I, and I, I think like you, I kind of read it as each playthrough creates its own world where it's, it's new. And also I didn't have a problem reading everyone as bi. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was interpreting it as positively as possible rather than an erasure. So I've heard criticisms of it as an erasure and also criticisms that it doesn't allow for an immersion because the NPCs don't seem like real people. Because obviously in the real world, there are people who just aren't going to be attracted to you because of their sexuality. And that's just the way things are. <laughs> but maybe this is a place where I didn't want the game to totally replicate the real world 
Well, I think in so so much of my approach here is that I'm dealing with a world where there are dragons and magic. <laughs> I can easily imagine everyone is by. <laughs> this is that's the least of my suspension of belief part. As your hawk like casts flaming fireballs from their okay, hands, turns invisible as he backstabs somebody. Oh right, yeah. But that is something that we should note about the way the game is framed: is that yes. there is this kind of hawk sexuality and. I, I didn't react to it negatively, though I can see why people might. So shall we talk about the, the romance options that are offered to us here? I want to talk a little bit about Anders and Fenris. So both characters are coded as men. Both have a violence hidden under their skin, which is depicted as blue glowy stuff, <laughs> for lack of a better Oh, yeah, they both have that. They both have that, yeah. They do. Um, for different reasons, right? There are different historical contexts and different reasons, but both of them are men and both of them are dangerous. And their danger and their violence is shown through this blue glowing effect. So what I think is interesting, and these are two of our three male romance options, right? And the only two that launched with the game, Sebastian coming later. What I think is really interesting is that they aren't just men, they are violent and dangerous men. And very angry. And angry men. Their primary emotions are often anger. <laughs> and they they almost kind of turn into predators when they get kind of glowy. And I think that I would draw on the gender binary here to show that what we've got depicted then in these two original male romance options is the men being portrayed as dangerous predators. And I, I find that interesting. And of course, Dragon Age, like I'm not going to blame Bioware for this. This is really common to have male romantic leads who are dangerous and predatory is a very common thing. And it's, it's not just a Dragon Age thing. So yeah, in fact, there, there's one romance scene with Fenris scene where he will literally angrily pin you to a wall all glowed up <laughs> in blue. And that's the same move he does when he rips people's hearts out. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, it's the same move, but then he pauses and doesn't rip your heart out. He may also, he does that when you're rivalmanced for sure. And I believe depending on how you handle the friendship romance, he will actually do that with a friend romance as well, depending on the order of events, like whether you approach him before or after certain other quests have been completed. So yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I think that's really interesting that my initial thoughts about these two characters is that they're very different. But then when I started thinking about it, I thought there are ways in which they are actually very similar in terms of their depiction of this kind of violent, predatory, angry masculinity. Also what's interesting too is in contrast with Meryl is the one that comes to mind immediately because in the in the last playthrough I did I I made the choice to not let her do what she wanted to do mm -hmm. and I think that sort of positioning her as and it does seem like the right choice in so many ways <laughs> the way that <laughs> the way that it plays out it's like that's actually seems to be the right thing to do um it's positioning her as that damsel in distress and you are saving her. Mm -hmm. She's put forward as naive because she, she really is so much of, 
Yeah, she doesn't know what she's doing. So, so much of the funny conversations you have with her come from her making comments about things that are so disingenuous because she just doesn't understand what's going on. And I think that plays into that stereotype of, you know, having to swoop in to protect her from from herself from herself whereas with Anders and Fenris with Anders you don't have the ability to save him from himself no that that is doomed you can sort of get to him although this is now where his two personalities kind of (laughs) come into play this merging with the spirit of justice thing yeah you could get him to start to doubt himself but then the angry justice side takes over but that's part of the game is it just takes over no matter how much he loves you right so no no matter what your relationship is you are not going to be able to stop that and now what's interesting though is with Fenris is he is in many ways a damsel in distress (laughs) (laughs) but He's been given the weapons yes, to enact his own vengeance. So you don't have to swoop in and save him in the same way. In fact, he he's not positioned yeah. as requiring your protection. Or as naive. Or as naive. No, he. if, if anything, he's just incredibly jaded now by, by the world. I know, that's part of the guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think in that respect, the 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 gender binary that does exist here does reflect those very common yeah. portrayals. We do have Anders and Fenris in different ways portrayed as these kind of angry, violent men. Yeah, and Meryl, who it turns out is also quite dangerous in this world, yes, is portrayed as a different kind of danger as somebody who's making a foolish decision and releasing danger, almost like a Pandora's box kind of situation. And so you are seen as saving her from herself and saving her village, her community from her foolish decisions. And that, yeah, that savior role isn't available with Anders or Fenris. The bad things have happened to Fenris and Anders from outside sources. And from before the game began, it's... Exactly. Whereas with Meryl, she is the one who brings the potential downfall on herself and community, mm-hmm. um, which completely buys into <laughs> the, the stereotypes yeah. that are so prevalent. That women are foolish, naive, not very rational, emotional, <laughs> make silly decisions. And Isabella too. Yes. That it is through her deception and her her deceit that is bringing all of this now down on her. Yeah. And so you again are being positioned as the. Yes. Even though she's incredibly capable, (laughs) right? She has the skills, but she is being presented as the person who needs protection because of her choices. Yeah. And Isabella in contrast to Meryl. So where Meryl is depicted as, very naive and well-intentioned. Isabella, you're right, you nailed it, is depicted as manipulative in some ways, right? She deceives you. She tricks the Kunari. She's the Jezebel. Actually, Meryl and and Isabel do play into the innocent versus the Jezebel. Yes. Those two tropes, I think, come out quite, quite strongly. 
Yeah. So we have this idea of men in this game as violent animals, almost as, as being swept away by these violent impulses. And it's, it's a little bit different than normal because the violent impulses in both Fenris and Anders have explanations and origins. And in Anders' case, the origin is kind of not even within himself. But we still have men having this kind of violent, angry impulses and women as either innocence in need of protection or these kind of Jezebel temptresses. Who are going to lie and scheme to get what they want. Yeah. And and then dump you. Yeah. And, and just leave you with a pile of mess that you have to clean up. <laughs> because they're manipulative and terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting because while everybody is hawk sexual, we still have this in some ways, very gender binary heteronormative script here where you are saving the women or you are dealing with the animality of men, which is very common historical romantic tropes. <laughs> so those are some of the options offered to Hawk. So in some way, Hawk has offered some very stereotypical romances here. Gentle the animalistic man, save the lost innocent, or the Jezebel. <laughs> and there's also the mechanisms by which you enter into these romances. And Kara, I think you wanted to say some stuff about that and how that's framed. I do. So there's, there's two steps basically to romance here. You, to, you, you build up either friendship or rivalry mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you make certain dialogue choices, which will eventually lock in a romance. And in order to further the friendship stuff, <laughs> which, by the way, we can go back to that notion of philia, right? That notion of love, mm-hmm. where to become close to somebody, you basically have to give people the right gifts <laughs> <laughs> or make the choices that they like. Yeah. And I found that really interesting because so the first time I played, I really didn't look at any spoilers. So I really just went with what I thought was the interesting story, the interesting dialogue choices. I tried to remain in character a bit to the hawk I was playing, who is always me. Right, right. We've established in the first. uh, We've established that. You will play yourself. (laughs) I will play myself. And so I'm going to make choices that I would make in that situation. And so it was... It was actually quite easy to romance Anders under those circumstances. I was able to become his friend fairly quickly because I was playing a mage. Mm-hmm. And throughout the whole thing, I was very much like, I'm going to protect the mages, man. Like They are getting a raw deal. And so every time I did a quest where I was like, protect the mages, he was like, oh, he loved that. It's like, okay. So in in terms of having to know much about... The mechanic, I really didn't have to know that much at that point. But the second time I played through, that's when I had goals because I had done some reading and I was like, oh, Fenris actually looks like an interesting character to romance. How do I do that? Because <laughs> sometimes the choices you make are really not obvious that he's going to be upset with you. So, I mean, some are, but some aren't. Right. So I did a lot more research in terms of impact on character right less role playing more research and googling sort of i did a lot of dropping 
Fenris out of my party and picking up someone else. So he wouldn't see what you did. So he wouldn't see what I was doing with the mages. Right. In particular. <laughs> because I still felt I was I was playing a hawk who really just was going to be protecting the mages because I, I was just end up in that position. I don't know why. So the the friendship mechanic meant that I was doing things like, okay, where can I find this gift so that I can, you know, hand it over to get that increase? Right. I need to earn some more friendship points with Fenris. Exactly. And the first time I played through, I just flirted with everybody all the time Mm -hmm. Um, because I thought it would be funny. Some of the flirt lines are really funny. (laughs) Some of them are. And I wasn't sure who I was going to romance that first playthrough because I was really quite, I was prepared to let it happen quite sort of naturally, if you will. Mm -hmm. Whereas the second time through, I was being so deliberate that it really struck me how the mechanic works Mm -hmm. depending on your gameplay. Mm -hmm. So if you're going through it, without any knowledge of this stuff, it actually feels quite different than if you're going through it with a particular goal in mind, <laughs> which now I tend to do because it's all about the cutscenes. Right. It's like, how do I get that cutscene now? And so it's the fore planning where you are able to so absolutely predict how things are going to happen. But it also makes it difficult because lots of people in the game like your 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 four romanceable characters like and dislike sometimes the opposite things yeah so if you side with the mages then anders will approve and friends won't and i admit the the first time i played through it was really really hard for me because i am pathetic and wanted them all to like me (laughs) all of them i wanted them all to be my friends yeah no why why does fenris hate me now and I got really upset when the rivalry notice would come up. I'd be like, what? What have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I found that actually really quite difficult. And I re- because I didn't know in advance what was happening because I hadn't spoiled myself, often I would, you'd be like, oh, man, I shouldn't have brought them with me that time. Mm-hmm. The second playthrough, though, I really didn't care beyond Fenris right. what people thought of me because I was playing a character hawk that was not me in a much deeper way. So um, I was really picking a lot of choices and things that I would not have personally done. So, but the, the mechanic meant that if you want all your characters to like you, you actually really have to yeah. work at it in a way that you might make choices that you wouldn't think the character would do or you wouldn't want to do yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I I found that an interesting mechanic. I mean, the thing is, I, I actually think it makes for good gameplay as, a, as the gameplay experience. I don't think there's any other way to do that. I think that's the only way you're going to build relationships is what you choose, what you say, and what you give them. <laughs> but it does mean you can actually be quite calculating about it. Mm-hmm which I find interesting in terms of the game as frame. Right. It seems to almost suggest this kind of, you're like a, a player or something. Exactly. Right. Like, it's, it's not a player of the game, but like a, a romantic player, right? Yeah. You're, you're figuring out how to pick up chicks in a bar. Exactly. And right. And 
what can I say so that I get that cut scene with Isabella? Exactly. Exactly. And so that I find really interesting philosophically. Yeah. Um, but while I'm playing the game, sometimes it's frustrating because I'll, I'll be in the middle of a quest. I'm like, oh, I have to make a choice here. Now it's going to piss off one of the people I'm with. That's standing here behind me. You know, I'm going to have to make up for that somehow. I'll go get them a pretty sword. <laughs> exactly. And so that sometimes throws me out yeah. a little bit. But again, it's not something I am I think is bad with the game. I think it's something that's interesting with the game. I could see that. And and building on a, off of that, I think it's also kind of interesting because at least when I think about love or attraction, I don't necessarily think that the people I'm attracted to or the people I fall in love with are people I agree with on everything. Yeah. And so it also feels a little bit weird when the character disagrees with you and that means that they're they're less likely perhaps to have a relationship with you. So from that respect, I actually kind of liked that there was a rival mechanic too. I liked that you could have a rivalry romance. I thought that was actually quite brilliant where, you know, let's build hate sex. In <laughs> <laughs> but what I also like is how they didn't character it, characterize it as hate. They characterized it as rivalry. Yes. Which is not the same thing as hate, right? I mean, rivalry is competition. And I think in that sense, it's framed as a competition of values. Mm-hmm right? Where the choices that you've made reflect values, which are in competition with the values that the character has. And I actually think that is super clever. And I'll admit, I never did try for a rival remote romance. I think because again, I never did enough research to figure out what the mechanic was for that. Right. And I was always worried it would fail. So the first right. romance I had was a rival romance with Fenris. Because like you, I wanted to protect all the mages. <laughs> and so I pushed him all the way to rivalry very quickly. <laughs> and so it was very organic in some ways, although it did take me by surprise. But like you, I'd been flirting with everyone. So it wasn't that weird when Fenris started flirting back. However, I learned in a subsequent playthrough that it is also possible to have a rivalry romance without flirting. So I went through discouraging Meryl, just like you did, from doing anything. Like, no, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to help you with the Alluvian. I'm not going to help you with this quest. And she kept getting madder and madder. And I was like, I don't care. Like, be as mad at me as you want. I'm not helping you. <laughs> and then she showed up at my house and propositioned me. <laughs> wow. And I had not flirted with her once. And that felt a little bit strange to me in terms of the framing. That's a little weird. Because it didn't, when when I had the rival mance with Fenris, it seemed quite organic that, you know, you're attracted to someone and you're infuriated by them. And I, I can relate to that. <laughs> yes. Sometimes the people you're in relationships with infuriate you at the same time as you feel desire for them or you feel a deep love for them. In fact, even, you know, if we're talking about agape, I can be infuriated with people I love in a non-romantic sense or a non-sexual sense too. And so that that seemed fine. Yes. But that we had never expressed any attraction. There had never been any flirting between my hawk and Meryl. And then Meryl shows up at my house and professes that she's deeply enamored of me. And I was like, whoa, 
where did this come from? (laughs) And the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about the rival and the friendship mats is that both of them link eros or romantic love to very strong emotions, right? So you can't enter into a romance with somebody who's like neutral about you. Yes. (laughs) Which is why it was so hard for me to enter into a romance with Isabella. Neutral. She was always just like, you're fine. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) You're fine. Now, uh, I just want to say something about Meryl just showing up out of the blue. Why I find that actually fascinating is it always feels like me in these games, like you're the instigator, right? The player is the instigator. So that she just shows up out of the blue. Yeah actually adds a level of realism that I kind of actually appreciate because that's not something that the player is specifically seeking out in a way that all the other times it really, I, I, I've never had that happen in a game where it's the other character that shows interest initiating it. Yeah. So I find that really interesting. Yeah. So that is something a little bit more realistic that the game does do. Because it gives it, it gives agency to the NPC, to the NPC who normally is just responding to what you've done. But it in that way, it presents as she's really angry with you, but has apparently been also attracted to the player for all this time, right? This whole time. And so instead of it's just being, oh, now I flirt and they will suddenly be like, oh, you're interested in me, are you? As a response, now it's sort of, they're the ones who are initiating it, which is, I always find interesting where it's not just a passive Mm -hmm. reaction to what the player's doing. So I I think that's actually kind of cool. It also kind of challenges what we said earlier. So we position Meryl as a damsel in distress in the classical narrative where you're trying to romance Meryl actively. But if Meryl just kind of shows up, that gives Meryl agency, which flips the damsel in distress narrative a little bit. Yes. Which is kind of cool. Not not a ton. She's still a damsel in distress, but but it does give her a romantic agency, which is kind of nice to see. So the gifts is also kind of interesting in this, that you give them gifts and it gains either. So if you've pushed them far enough into rivalry, giving them gifts just pisses them off more. Yes. (laughs) Which is just delightful. Um, And if you've pushed them far enough to friendship, giving gifts earns more friendship. And it is kind of interesting because there is a way in which giving them gifts almost kind of like, is it? bribing them to love you or to to have a romantic relationship with you it's very capitalist almost we see this a lot right valentine's day and oh yeah people's birthdays and christmas like buy your loved one show them how much you love them by dropping a ton of money right. or you know rifling through empty boxes in dark alleys and finding a sword to give them oh that's just in the game don't do that in real life <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I would strongly encourage you not to do that in real life. Though it's curious because I don't think you have to purchase most of these gifts. They're just things you find. There are some that you can purchase. That's true. But I often miss those because I don't end up buying a lot of stuff. So usually it's the ones that I just find in the back alleys. So so how do we feel about the, the commodification of love? What would philosophy have to say about the commodification here? I'm honestly not sure. Uh, In some respects, certainly the idea that 
if you're coming at it from, you know, love as agape love, then the, certainly that's going to not fit within it, right? Because you're being so instrumentalist and mm-hmm. um, the love that is being returned to you is entirely conditional on, on have you given me enough stuff? Right, right. And have you made the choices I like? Because I'm not going to love you otherwise, <laughs> Right. So the thing is, though, that it's entirely one sided, yeah. that instrumental uh, in, instrumental response anyway, because you could just love the person and be giving them gifts and the hope they'll return. <laughs> or as just this is a sign of my affection yes. for you. And the thing is, you can give people gifts without entering into romantic relationship with them as well. So they but they also do function as a purchasing your friendship. Yes, it still does kind of pur- purchase maybe the filial love. It kind of does. So so much of it would depend on the intent of the giving of the gift. Is it simply because I've researched how to romance Fenris and giving him <laughs> this sword will increase greatly his his friendship for me? Or is it I found this and it made me think of you? Yeah, right. <laughs> Are you playing in character or are you being incredibly instrumental because you just want the cut scene? Yeah. (laughs) But in many respects, it's been such a common theme Mm -hmm. in, I think, both the tropes that we associate with love, Mm -hmm. you know, grand gestures, the showing that you love a person, that I, I think it's probably just an inherent part of how we kind of show affection for each other in a lot of ways that we, we do things that we think the objects of our affection will like. Mm -hmm. And if that's through, you know, just gestures and doing things that don't necessarily have that sort of more commercial (laughs) content part, but the game mechanic maps very well onto how those relationships often do play out in real life. But it would be almost weird if you couldn't give your loved one a token of your affection. And you would expect that that would have an impact on the person. Now, what's interesting is if we think of love as something that is, for example, a an affect, right? It's a, it's a, a feeling or a disposition we have then we may think that giving a gift doesn't, it's not a, it's not a scale, right? Like the idea that if, if my wife gives me flowers, oh, now I love her more. Right. <laughs> more of her, right? It's not, <laughs> I, I think most people don't tend to think about love as a continuum from hundred percent friendship to hundred percent rivalry. Right. 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 Where and the idea that bringing home flowers is going to earn me like 10% more friendship. Exactly. So then I can do something bad later because I've offset it already. You've offset it. Right. I don't think that is what people generally have in mind that when I'm in love with someone, I'm in love with them. And these sorts of gestures are symbols of that love and any responses the object of my affection might have. It's not that it's increasing the love, but rather they will now engage in behaviors that demonstrate that reciprocity. Right. And I think that's an important aspect of most accounts of love, that there is a reciprocity involved when that love is successful, where you actually have people who are in love with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there is unreciprocated love, right? where there is no reciprocity, but where we're actually talking about 
people in a relationship, that notion of reciprocity actually is really important. And I think the, the way the game mechanic frames that is the reciprocity ends up being that meter that moves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are some situations where, for example, Isabella comes back to you. Yes. And brings the book and yeah. returns or Fenris, if you choose to, if you, if you choose to side with the mages and you've achievement unlocked your romance with Fenris, he will stay beside you, even though he's like, I don't know that we should be doing this. Not too happy. That happened to me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there are times when there is a reciprocity in the action of the characters. Yeah. But yes, I think most of the time the feedback we get is that the meter moves. Yes. Which is, a, I mean, it's a game mechanic. It's how the game works. But it's also yes. kind of curious to think about because I do think that sometimes we are encouraged to think of gifts as a way to buy love. I, I think so. Like yeah. outside of the game, like in yeah. real world. I think so. Yeah, very much I think so. we are sometimes encouraged to think of that. Um, or even also as to buy our way, quote unquote, out of the doghouse. Yes. And I see this a lot in advertising towards explicitly heterosexual couples, not not exclusively, but often the idea that the man can buy his way out of the doghouse. Yes. Right. That's what Valentine's Day is. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to return before we move on to our next section, just to talk about two other things that we haven't talked about too much right now. Three other things, I lied. So I want to talk about the characters that we can flirt with that we can't enter into relationships with. I want to talk about the nature of the relationships because pretty much all the relationships, save possibly one, are framed as monogamous relationships. And I want to talk a little bit about Sebastian because we haven't really got to Sebastian yet. So the characters we can flirt with. We can flirt with Aveline. She's the one I'm thinking of in particular, even though she is a non-romanceable character. Yeah. And, and not only can you flirt with her, but it's framed as a flirt, right? There's the little heart icon. And this actually really bummed out my husband because he was so like, I'm going to romance oh. Aveline. Oh. <laughs> and then you can't. And I mean, honestly, of all the characters, Aveline and Varg seem... I don't know. I like them both better than any of the characters you can actually They're romance. They're nice, dependable ones. So I, I liked them both. Yeah. And you, there are, there are times when it sounds like Hawk's flirting with Varric, even though the little flirt icon isn't there. Mm -hmm. So you can maybe flirt with Varric, depending on how you interpret that. And you can definitely flirt with Aveline. And it is so adorable because yes. she is completely oblivious yeah. to the fact that you are flirting with her. So we do get these moments of unrequited love particularly with Aveline, where you can you can flirt so hard with Aveline and she's just like, oh, you're so sweet. Yep. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and it's so lovely. It is adorable. So I really did like that for showing this idea of kind of the where the reciprocity isn't quite there. Although I would say Aveline and Varg both are examples of philia love. Yes, absolutely. Definitely, absolutely. And you can still earn friendship and rivalry with both of them. But you can't enter into this kind of eros love with Aveline or Varg. You don't get that, that feedback, that reciprocity. So I just wanted to highlight that. The other thing I want to talk about is how virtually all the relationships are framed as monogamous. So there is a point at every point in the relationship where you kind of have to lock in with this one character. And then all the flirt options 
for all, everybody else kind of disappear more or less. Like you can't really flirt Is with them. Is it this game where they check in with you to say, well, aren't you in with a relationship with someone else? Yeah. They're, so if you've been flirting with everyone, yeah, <laughs> the characters check in with you in various different ways. So Isabella, for example, yeah. says like, look, you've been flirting with me and you've been flirting with Meryl. Yeah. And I'm not cool with this because I don't want Meryl to get hurt. So you need to pick, for example. Yeah. So they do check in with you and challenge you. If you've only been flirting with one character, then you're fine. But if you, like yeah. me, flirted with everybody. <laughs> I did first playthrough. Yeah. I remember that very clearly. There is a point where you are no longer allowed to do that. Right. <laughs> so you have to you have to choose somebody. And you can't enter into polyamorous relationships. These are couplings. So we come back to this idea of a, a binary and a coupling. Except for the possible exception is when it comes to your encounter with Zevran, if you are in a relationship with Isabella. Yes, and that is cute. Yeah. And Isabella is totally fine with... If you don't bring her in the party, she's not upset that you went and had sexy times with Zevran, should you choose to do that. And if she's in the party, she's like, hey, I'm going to come along. I know Zevran from game one. Let's let's yeah. go. And it's great. But other than that, what we have is fairly traditional monog monogamous relationships that are based on this kind of predatory males, damsel in distress or Jezebel females. And yeah, they have to be they have to be locked in. And they are all leading us into Sebastian. All but one of them, you win the achievement, the trophy for having the relationship. Somewhere in act three, after you've had your sexual encounter cutscene with them, and after they kind of declare their love for you. So the sexual encounters for them, I think normally happen in act two. And then in act three, there's kind of a lock-in moment where they declare their love for you and you get the doo-doo trophy thing. <laughs> Sebastian is the outlier here. Because when it comes to Sebastian's romance, you can romance Sebastian without having any sexual encounter. So all the other romances, I think, to some degree, we can see a conflation of desire with love. Yes. So we have this idea of romantic love being a love that is also combined with a sexual desire. But when we have Sebastian's romance, it's not clear to what extent that is not the case. So... It's not, Sebastian frames it in terms of chastity, which is not necessarily the same as an absence of a sexual desire. So we often think yeah. of chastity as holding the, the desire in check, right? So you may still have the desire, but you choose not to act on it for religious or moral or practical reasons, whatever it might be. Now that's not the same as having a love without the desire. That's true. But it's curious that Sebastian's romance exists. Well, what's interesting is when I started reading up on his romance, what it reminded me was of chivalry. Yeah, chivalry. Yes, it reminded me a lot of the love that is associated with chivalry. Perfect. So in those types of relationships, love was all about the adoration, putting your object of affection on a pedestal and Yes, sexual desire in some ways, but that was always tamped down and it was it was seen as a pure sort of love. Right. Largely because in the context of love and chivalry, the the object of affection was often already married. 
right? So it would be considered socially inappropriate. Yes. And the idea was that you could romance the object of your affection without physical contact, that it would be through poetry, through song. The idea was that it wasn't something that would be physically consummated at all. And it, but that made it even purer. And of course, this, you know, connected with, you know, very Christian ideas of Christian, original sin, sex, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. So that's the first thing that sort of popped into my head when I was looking at this relationship. I'm like, wow, that's that chivalric love right there mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of it's not going to be consummated that it, and now again, I haven't played through his story, but everything I read seemed to point very highly towards that where you don't have the notion of romance and sex being unified in, in such a direct way. Instead that it's, it is the adoration, deep relationship stuff that is more pure without the physical. Yeah. That seemed to be driving that story as opposed to the other. So is that still philia? That's actually moving away from the Greek yeah. distinctions between these three different kinds of love. So it's it's not. It's a different understanding of what... Of what romantic love is. Of what romance and love... I think it still falls under eros, actually. Oh, okay. Because it is about desire. Yes. But it's about desire that is not bodied in the physical consummation of it. Right. So it's still an, it's an erotic love. Right. But it's not a physical. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Sebastian, I think is a really interesting example here because yeah, like I said, the game mechanics often treat the, the consummation of the relationship as being a trophy, (laughs) an achievement, Right. So you get your little cutscene sex scene thing, and then you get your like, ding, you got a trophy for starting this relationship. And then you get another trophy later if the relationship is solidified. But that means that, yeah, for the majority of these, Eros is operating, I think, pretty strongly. We have this identification of love and romance and the fulfillment of sexual desire kind of all lining up as like, this is what a relationship is. And with Sebastian, we don't have that, right? We have love and romance, but not the need for a fulfillment of sexual desire in order for you to get the trophy, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. I wouldn't go so far as to say Sebastian gives us an example of an asexual relationship because of the issue of chastity here. So when I think of asexuality, I don't think it's the same as chastity. Chastity being where you have these physical sexual desires, but you hold them in check. And it's not clear to me which is operating with Sebastian. I think it's meant to be chastity. Right. Other people could have differing interpretations, though, which I recognize. So I think it's kind of cool that Sebastian offers us this different model of what romantic love can be and can look like. Can I talk about my first romance with Anders and the way in which emotions play in yeah do it so this this requires some backstory my wife was very interested that i was playing this game without any spoilers nice because she knew what was coming and i was playing this at night after our children went to sleep 
And so I would be huddled in the living room with the volume turned down, right. playing. As all parents do. And she would be waiting, waiting until the moment Anders blew up the chantry. Oh, no. Because she wanted to see my face at that moment. That's diabolical. And I remember it happening and just having to swear under my breath so quietly so not to wake the children because I was just stunned that this had happened. And I was so emotionally upset by this that it came to the moment where you had to decide what to do with Anders. Right. And I just stabbed him. Sure. He was like, you're dead to me. Metaphorically and literally. <laughs> literally and metaphorically. You are dead to me. And I actually think that, because I normally, and this was my first playthrough where I normally play as myself, I would never normally choose to kill someone mm -hmm. when I have the option of giving them a chance of redemption. Right. I'm all about the redemption arc. I, I like those. So I found it really interesting that in this moment where my character had invested so much in this romance and he goes and pulls this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so angry at that betrayal that I just, and I think not just in how I imagine my hawk would be, but I think I myself was so angry at yeah. this betrayal that I just decided, okay, you have to die because I can't give you redemption for what you've done. And I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about not just Dragon Age 2, but all of them is how invested mm -hmm. you get in the characters and the relationships. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I think it's in all Bioware games that have yes. these sorts of yes. things. You get so invested in them that you actually can feel in your affect how you think your character might feel that it wasn't just Hawk who was being betrayed at that point, but I, the player was now being betrayed. And that the strong, and you, you brought this up earlier, that strong emotions that go with those portrayal of people in the game when it comes to romance and how Love is often associated with these yeah. big emotions and these large feelings and how they can spur action mm -hmm. in ways that in our more calm periods we may not take. Right. I also think that's really interesting because it gives you an opportunity to learn something about yourself. It really does. And I, I don't want to say that Anders was a proxy for my wife for not telling me that this was going to happen. <laughs> but her enjoyment out of my <laughs> watching your betrayal probably helped fuel that just a little bit. Right. In right. retrospect, it's absolutely hilarious. But she really was <laughs> listening in to what point I was in at the story to be like, oh, oh, she's almost there. I got to come into the living room to watch this part. It also made the subsequent playthroughs having had that emotional reaction to a character I was romancing, the next playthrough, I didn't flirt with Anders ever. Right. It actually colored my interactions with him in the next one, where I was less concerned about what he thought. I didn't really care. I gave him his redemption arc, but also 
you get these funny little moments too, where you get the foreshadowing that I didn't catch the first time. Yeah. So when you're in the chantry and, and, and he shows up when you're, you know, and you're wondering what he was doing there and was it, is it, it's not the divine, but the, the Reverend mother, the Reverend mother. So the Reverend mother comes up as you're talking with him and she says to him, I hope you have found a bomb. Yeah. B-A-L-M, right? B-A-L-M. Yeah. And all I could think of was like, I'm glad I had these, the subtitles on. Because, <laughs> like, that, was that intentional? <laughs> was that intentional to foreshadowing? Right. I don't know, but it worked really well. For and But those all come together for those emotional reactions, which I find really interesting in terms of the game as frame for how the game frames how we think about romance and things like that and how the mechanics work but it also sets me up every single time for every other romance in every other playthrough (laughs) that it's actually hard to think yeah and even for subsequent editions of the game right so you're like on the lookout for the next anders the next time you play a bioware game right Exactly. I'm not going to get caught again. And then, you know, you go black man. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. The other thing I think is kind of interesting about that visceral reaction is it, it might suggest a difference between Eros and Agape, right? The idea that Mm -hmm. you said Anders for you, for your Hawk and for you was beyond redemption. And I know there are other players who, didn't feel that way about Anders. But the fact that some people do and that the game recognizes that you may have reached your limit with this person is different from the kind of the love that Agape is supposed to promise. Yeah. Although I think it wasn't necessarily that I thought his love that sorry that he was beyond redemption. I just didn't want to give it beyond your redemption, though, beyond your ability to it was there's yeah, it was beyond my ability to forgive. Yeah. In that moment. And what was interesting, though, is that in the next playthrough, when I was not in a relationship with him, but was with Fenris, at great risk to my relationship with Fenris, I did give him the redemption arc. So the way in which the passion of Eros. Yeah, the passion of Eros made it actually more difficult not to be caught up in vengeance for the betrayal, as opposed to channeling that agape and unconditional love and a willingness to forgive transgressions. And this also might go back to Eros as being more reciprocal, right? The idea that you yes. expect things from someone that you're in an Eros relationship with, whereas agape being unconditional means there isn't an expectation of the reciprocity. Yeah, I'd expect my boyfriend to tell me he was going to blow up a building. And that he was making you complicit. Yeah, I might have helped. That's the other part that drives me crazy. I'm like, you dragged me along. Part of me is like, you could have asked. Yeah. I might have said yes. You never know. You never know. But you didn't give me the choice. Yeah. So stabby, stabby for you. (laughs) Am I going to title this one stabby, stabby? Who can say? (laughs) I don't know. That has much, that has potential innuendo. (laughs) Yeah, it works on multiple levels. Oh, no. Let's move on to uh, our fourth section, A Modern Girl in Theodos. So if we think beyond the borders of this game, we've already talked about this to some degree, 
but how might the game's treatment of love, sex, romance, desire, illuminate things in the real world? And one thing we've already talked about is that it might allow us to experiment with our own reactions to relationships, right? So learning how you might be affected by a deep betrayal, for example. <laughs> Stab. Um, <laughs> I can prepare myself. Yes. One other thing I want to talk about is that I sometimes have this cognitive dissonant reaction playing these games. And I'll go back to this issue of Fenris slamming Hawk against the wall while being all glowed up. And there's a part of me that's like, man, that's really hot. (laughs) And then another part of me that's like, hang on, what? No, this is violent. Like this is a portrayal of violent masculinity. This is toxic. This is not okay. (laughs) And so I find this really interesting. And I want to come back to sex positive and sex negative feminism to talk about it. Because on some readings of sex positive feminism, I should be allowed to just go with my reaction that, man, this is really hot. And this is this is just something that I think is really fun to play through as a game and that I think is sexy. But of course, sex negative feminism reminded us that all of our desires don't just occur in a vacuum, right? That we are influenced by the society we live in and the norms both positive and toxic norms that that circulate in that society. So the idea of men as being kind of dangerous, predatory, violent, angry is something we see in a lot of romance literature and romance movies and media. And so the portrayal of Fenris in this moment as violent could be read as hot because of these internalized norms, right? So sex-negative feminism asks us to question these norms that are feeding our desires. Now, what's happening now in kind of the movement around desire and feminist discourse is kind of a hybrid between the two. So we still have a very sex-positive outlook, most feminists. I can't say we blanket. (laughs) That's not true because feminism is heterogeneous. But many feminists have a more sex-positive outlook. Love who you love, desire what you desire. But then there's a but. But recognize that your desires are not happening in a vacuum and take a moment to critique and to think about those desires and what's motivating them and where they're coming from. And so I think that the game actually gives me a unique opportunity to do this kind of thing in a very safe way, right? Because it's not real world encounters, it's NPCs. <laughs> and so if I watch something and I think to myself, oh yeah, that's sexy. And then I think, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> then I have a moment to kind of question, why do I find something sexy? So what I think is really cool about what we can learn about the game is that it kind of gives us an opportunity in a very low stakes situation to examine our own reactions, our own desires, our own emotions, examine why you so viscerally (laughs) wanted to stab Anders, for example, and examine why Anders acting in what is arguably an incredibly dangerous way towards Hawk Mm -hmm. can be read as sexy. I, I generally, I admit, I don't like the labels sex negative and sex positive because I think that creates now a binary of how we have to be thinking about sex. And so the way that I tend to frame it is that we, we need to recognize instead a distinction between first order and second order desires. Yeah. So 
we can recognize that our first order desires are present and there. And that's sort of where the sex positive feminism seems to be focusing, where it's you feel what you feel and it's all good. And yeah, we don't have to quash it. We don't have to kink shame people that if certain people find certain things sexy and arousing, that's okay. I have problems with that. Yeah. Because many people have sexual desires that are grounded in things which are deeply problematic. I don't think, for example, that pedophilia, yeah, just you know, bring up an extreme example, is something that should fall under the umbrella of sex positivism. Now, that said, there have been some feminist writers who mm-hmm. have adopted that position that you know that they that pedophiles have been unfairly treated by society. Um, I am not one of those people though. And so I tend to to frame it as we have first order desires. So first order desires are the ones that are immediate and present. And then we can step back and think about whether we want to desire those desires. Um, the example I often use with my students is um, I love chocolate. I crave chocolate. Mm-hmm. But as a diabetic, I don't want to desire to have the desire, I don't want the desire for chocolate. If I had the power to just magically remove it from me, I would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have that capacity though. Yeah. <laughs> but we can think, in other words, we can think critically about what those desires are, what the effects of those desires are, what is creating those desires, and uh, whether they are a desire that is healthy and I think the word I want to invoke here is caring. Uh, does it allow you to inhabit the world in a caring way? And I think the work that I've done within the BDSM community in terms of looking at sexual desire and consent, mm-hmm. that in, in some respects, as long as the activities are consensual, and we have to you know, mm-hmm. give a robust account of what consensual means here, I don't think that there is inherently something wrong with this the sort of reaction people get with hawk and fenris provided that there's a recognition that it is you know it, it is fantasy and this plays into the other thing that fantasy and i think pornography in general provides an area where people are able to explore alternatives in a way that can actually be helpful what, what I find interesting is for me is when I play as either a male character, which I'm not, mm-hmm. or as a straight character, which I'm not. So those kinds of fantasies of being something that I'm not, mm-hmm. I actually think is really interesting. And this is a way in which I think the whole series of these games allows you to play with romance, love and sex in a way and in a very safe way environment where you know the worst thing you do is you stab your lover who betrays you (laughs) he'll be back in the next playthrough and it allows for a certain amount of play which as you say then opens up that area for critical thought about why do i find this why do i find this interesting and yeah for the second order critique you know why do i always tend to romance (laughs) the wrong person (laughs) objectively (laughs) You know, what is it about these characters that make them the ones that I tend to gravitate towards in the games? Right. Right. Based on the characters that I'm playing. Those are fun questions to ask. And I think it's also 
revealing about some of the assumptions that we make about ourselves and for and and can challenge us to think about the sort of things. And I will add, I mean, I do agree that the sex positive, sex negative is binary. I also personally think that the the way sex positive often gets classified and discussed is a little bit simplistic. It is often. Because I think that sex positive feminism always had in it this core of self-reflection, this idea that you don't just get a free pass on what you're calling these first order desires, that it behooves us all to think about where these desires are coming from and spend a little bit of time critically reflecting on our first order desires or first order beliefs, but but we don't have to, you know, quash them and squish them. And so in some respects, sex positivity requires quite a lot of self-reflection and yeah, it can be it can be a little bit challenging. And so just like you, I find these games really helpful for allowing a free exploration of different romances that can be entered into, different ways of being in the world, playing as a man, romancing a man, something that, you know, I'm never going to do <laughs> as being a cis woman, a cis hat woman, I'm never going to do that. I think that that's really, really interesting. And yeah, the, those explorations are really cool as long as we remember that the game is still framing our encounters here, right? It's still giving us certain tropes of masculinity and certain tropes of femininity and certain tropes of monogamy. So it's an exploration that is safe, but is not entirely free, which is really not different from the real world in some respects, but is something that I think we need to keep in mind. Well, thanks for joining me, Kara, for the second episode. We got it done again. Did another episode. This is always a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was really, really fun. We will do it again sometime. So that is the end of episode two of Andraste's Godfly. A.K.A. Stabby Stabby Stabby. A.K.A. Stabby Stab. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>